Well, if you weren't awake, when you came in, you are now, right? Yeah, that was something. That good stuff. Can you believe October already? Wow. That just slipped up on me. I don't know about you, but that happened quick, it seems like. And uh, we're, we're going to dive in. We have a new series that we're starting today. Before we do that, I don't know if you caught it, but our governor, uh, he actually declared today as a, a day of prayer uh, to pray for the president with the COVID situation and our government leaders and, and people in our community as well. And so I'd like to go ahead and, and start that way. Let's pray together. Father God in heaven, we pray that you would uh, protect and strengthen President Trump and the First Lady and the other government leaders uh, that have been impacted with COVID and also as we've been praying for people in our community uh, who have been struggling with COVID, Lord, that you would uh, help them to recover. We thank you, Lord, that, uh, that you've allowed us to develop therapeutics and, and other things that uh, improve people's chances as they uh, are afflicted. And Lord, thanks for that. And we just thank you for your goodness that we could see all the time, Lord, especially your son. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thank you for that. We are starting a, a new series called Phantom Faith. And, and this series is all about how do we know that our faith is real? Because we know there are a lot of people who would claim to be Christians that actually are not Christians. And Jesus was telling us this in his ministry. And so we want to um, look at that and realize that, that, that there's answers to that, how we know our faith is real. And today, I really want to start at the foundation of that, and that's how we begin our life as a Christian, whether we know that beginning's correct or not. And then in the next few weeks, we'll follow through to say, hey, how we can examine our lives at the time. So I think this is key teaching because we want to make sure we don't have phantom faith. Probably all of us uh, have experienced things that we thought were going to happen that didn't happen. Uh, for example, one time I was out with some of the other guys on our staff. We were in California getting ready to fly back to Ohio. And, and for some reason, cautionary tale, for some reason we didn't fly out of LAX. We had found a discount flyer out of an airport in Burbank. And so we drive to Burbank and we walk into this little, uh, little airport and then our counter, we were doing a discount carrier, I think it was JetBlue, and we go up to our counter in the, in the airport and it's dark and nobody's there. And all the other counters of the other airlines all have people at them, but here, our counter, it's, all the lights are turned off and there's just nobody. There's nobody that works for the organization that we can find. We thought that was a little bit odd and because it's time for us to catch our flight. And then uh, we notice, and we start checking, hey, did we get this right? Yeah, it's the right time. Yep, we have our seats. Yep, the flight's reserved. Yeah, we're all set. And then the announcement came, you know, that says your flight is canceled. I know that's probably happened to others. Your flight is canceled. And you're like, what? I mean, the, the weather's nice. Everything's good. All these other flights are taken off. Everything's great. We have a seat. Our reservation is 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 right. I mean, we are guaranteed a spot on this plane. All that's in order. It's just that there's no plane, you know, no flight. So phantom flight. And probably something like that's happened to all of us. But hey, we want to make sure the most important thing in our life, our faith, is not just phantom faith, that it's real. That it's something in our lives that, that is objective, that we know, that we are not just kidding ourselves about. And Jesus taught us that we should examine ourselves 
to see whether we are of the faith. Paul said the same thing. Examine yourselves to see whether you're of the faith. And so that's what we want to do. I'm going to go to a place in Luke chapter 8, and we're going to look at a parable that he told that's going to teach us this. And as we look at this parable, there's actually three sections, and I'm going to go the middle section, then the first section, then the third section. So it's, it's going to throw you off, but I think we could do it, right? Middle, then the first, then the third. Yeah, I, I, think, I think we got this. Now, to set the context, this is a time in Jesus's ministry where he has become increasingly more popular And as he's become more popular, he's also experienced more opposition. And so here he is teaching. He's got his 12 disciples and other people who are traveling with him. Some of those other people include a small group of ladies who are also traveling with them. And we find out that those ladies are actually helping to finance their travels, finance the ministry. And so at about this time uh, that we're looking at in Luke, there's a shift in Jesus' ministry. As the opposition increases, Jesus starts using these short stories called parables, short stories to illustrate spiritual truth. And so he does that in this chapter. We're going to look at one of those stories. But I just before we even get to the story, I just want to tell you that the disciples as they see that he's starting to use these short stories, they, they're asking him, why? What, what's this mean? What's up? What's the scoop? And Jesus not only tells them what the, what the story means, which he does that in the third part, but in that middle part, he also tells them why he even does parables. So why parables? Jesus says that he basically uses them for two different reasons. One is what I just described They are short, earthy stories that illustrate profound spiritual truth. So it's just a short story that illustrates a truth. But then the second, there's another reason that sometimes he used parables, and that is to obscure truth. And that sounds a little weird to us, obscure truth. And and that's really why some people, it's really to obscure truth to those who reject him. And that is really why some people, when we talk to them, will try to show them spiritual truth and they just don't seem to see it. And it's not that difficult. It's not that problematic, but somebody who just doesn't click with some people, I think this is part of that. Now, a lot of people, when we talk to them about God, uh, and, and maybe that was true of us too, that we started in the position of, well, God has to do something. All right, if God is real, and if I'm supposed to believe in him, then I'm going to throw the ball into God's court, that he has to get this ball rolling, uh, that he has to prove himself to me. And so sometimes we'll be talking to somebody, or maybe that's the way you were when somebody first talked to you about God. They'll say, well, if God is God, I've talked to many people who have said that, If God is God, Kevin, if God is God, then why doesn't he show up in my life, prove himself to me personally in an undeniable way? Write it in the sky. Hit me with a lightning bolt. Do something. If God is God and he's all powerful, he can do anything and he cares about me, why doesn't he do that? Now, actually, God's already done that. 
We call that general revelation and special revelation. General revelation is we look around and just by the very fact that we're alive and we can look at nature and look at life and look at everything around us, that is evidence for God. Now, some people would say, no, that's not. Just logically, that's evidence for God. Some people would look and say, no, that's not evidence for God. That's evolution. But evolution actually makes no sense. Evolution only makes sense. It's the best choice if there is no God. But we can't, we can't create life. We can't create anything out of nothing. It, it really doesn't make any sense. It only is a evidence for people who first rule out God and say, well, there can't be a God, so how did all this happen? How did life begin? Well, now you have evolution. That's not the best explanation. It's the best explanation if there is no God. But we can't prove it. We can't replicate it. Let me get off of that because I could just go all day and you guys have already heard me do this. So yeah, I, I won't keep doing that. Point is, hey, God has given us evidence, general evidence in the world around us, but also, also what we call special revelation. And that is he's revealed to us himself in his word, the Bible, the word of God, which, just a reminder, the Bible is the most well-known book in the entire world. The Bible is known the entire world over. It's the best-selling book every year. Doesn't show up on the list because it would be redundant, always the best-selling book, the best-known book, the, the most-read book in the world. And God's revealed himself in Jesus Christ, who is the most famous person who ever lived in the world. So these are not small things. God has revealed himself in big, big ways. But people, a lot of times, they start with the position, well, the ball's in God's court. No, God has already batted the ball to our court. We have life. We can think. We can understand the concept of that there is a God. We see life created all around us. There's a Bible. There's Jesus. And so, but people will push back and say, but why doesn't God, if he loves me, why doesn't God reveal himself to me personally in some amazing, undeniable way? And I'm not sure I know the answer to that, except here's what I do know. God does not force belief. God does not strong-arm belief. God does not coerce belief. God does not blackmail us into belief. God invites us into belief. And so I think that's why. Now, Jesus tells a parable, as I said, and then after he tells it, the disciples say, what does this mean? And I want to pick up that middle part before we get to the first and the third. Here it is. Luke chapter 8, beginning in verse 9. The he tells a parable, and then the disciples began questioning him as to what this parable meant. And he said, to you it has been granted to know the mysteries of the kingdom of God. But to the rest... It is in parables, so that seeing they may not see, and hearing they may not understand. Okay, we hear that, and that really sounds strange to us. Hold it. Whoa, Kevin, are you saying that Jesus is saying 
that he doesn't want us to understand? Is Jesus saying he doesn't want us to understand his teaching? Is Jesus saying right here that his message is a secret and only certain people with some special knowledge can understand what it means? No, that is not what Jesus is saying. And we know that because he quotes Isaiah. And this is God talking to Isaiah in the Old Testament, way back then. God's talking to Isaiah and he's basically saying this same thing, that seeing they will not see and hearing they won't understand. And what's the context there? Isaiah has been preaching God's word over and over and over to God's people. But God's people have continually rejected Isaiah and his message. And then God says, we're going to keep doing this, but they're not going to believe. And Jesus is equating with what was happening at Isaiah's time with what's happening in his own ministry. The more he's teaching, the more opposition, and the more people are rejecting his message. And so that's how he's using that. So we understand from this that that's that second way. And if we keep rejecting the truth that we have in Isaiah's day, in Jesus' day, or today, that then we will fail to understand further truth that God gives us. And when he talks about the mysteries of the kingdom, it's not that these are mysteries for us today. Mysteries of the kingdom were things, were, it was truth that was revealed to us in the Old Testament that God's people during Jesus' day didn't really understand all of it. And then Jesus came to fulfill it and so we could all understand it. And, and the best way we can say that, the greatest mystery when this word is used in the New Testament, predominantly it just means the gospel. And the gospel is just a fancy word, way of saying the good news. And the good news that the Bible, the New Testament, continually teaches us is this, what Jesus has come and done. Now, understand something. So during Jesus' day, they all had the Old Testament. And so they knew that there was a God. They knew that they were created by God. They knew that God said, here's right and here's wrong. All that has been revealed to them. They understood all that. They also knew that God was just and that they needed to do right and to not do right, you deserve punishment. They understand all that. They also understood that God made a way to temporarily deal with that through the sacrificial system. They were taught that accurately that sin was so serious and, and we always underestimate the sin, our sin, but the Old Testament taught, no, this sin is so serious that it requires life to pay for it. So the sacrificial system was where periodically they would take an innocent animal. Kevin, this is terrible. They're going to take an innocent animal and kill the animal. Right, that's what they did to show how terrible sin is. That was the whole point. They would take an innocent animal, kill it, and then that innocent animal would sort of temporarily cover their sins for a year or for a time, just temporarily. And so the people understood all that. And they even knew that there was a Messiah that would be coming. 
They knew that he was going to show up. They knew that he was going to save Israel. They knew that he was going to be a king. They knew that he came from a line of kings, the line of David. They knew all these things. But there were other things in the Old Testament that were mysteries to them that they did not understand. For example, how that savior, that king, would suffer and die. How he would end the sacrificial system. So Jesus comes... He is the actual son of God. He lived a perfect life. And then he allowed himself to be sacrificed on the cross as the ultimate sacrifice forever. That he would pay as God for all sins for every person who trusted in him for all time. So there's no more sacrificial system All that pointed to Jesus. And so the good news is that although there's a God who created us and wants us to do right, and although we've all done wrong, there's a way for God to forgive us and not violate his own justice. And that's because Jesus paid our penalty for us. He was our substitute. The only one who didn't deserve to die for a sin because he had no sin died for our sins. So all that's good news. But as Jesus was now preaching this good news that was a mystery in the Old Testament, people were not, some people were responding and a lot of people were not responding. Not everybody responds. And so now in this point is the ministry, Jesus tells a parable to explain how it is that some people don't respond. So are we ready for the story? All right, well, that's a long way to get there, wasn't there? All right, verse four, here we go. When a large crowd was coming together and those from various cities were journeying to him, he spoke by way of a parable. And here's what he said. The sower went out to sow his seed. And as he sowed, some fell beside the road and it was trampled underfoot and the birds of the air ate it up. Other seed fell on rocky soil, and as soon as it grew up, it withered away because it had no moisture. Other seed fell among the thorns, and the thorns grew up with it and choked it out. Other seed fell into the good soil and grew up and produced a crop a hundred times as great. And as he said these things, he'd call out, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. I used to think because of what follows that we already talked about, about the mysteries and all that, that maybe God didn't give the right kind of ears to everybody. That's not what he's saying. He's saying, I created you with ears. You have ears. Listen. Hear what I'm saying. Get the message. That's what he's saying. He calls everyone to respond to his message. And so, of course, when he tells this story now, just like us, the disciples want to know, okay, all right, you just told this story about a a farmer throwing out seed as he's planting. That's the way they do it broadcast. You just toss it out. He's sowing his seed, and it hits four different types of ground, and then four different results. What are you talking about here? So they ask him, 
What do you mean? What's the meaning of this parable? And here's basically what he says. Jesus is going to go on and explain this parable so we don't have to guess. We don't have to wonder. We know exactly what this parable means. And he's basically going to say this. It's the condition of our heart that determines the response, our response, to the gospel. The condition of our heart determines our response to the gospel. Now, that doesn't mean we have to have some special heart. Otherwise, we're not going to understand the gospel. The gospel is a simple, it's simple news that makes logical sense. That's the gospel. It's, it's not rocket science. But insight into truth, especially deeper spiritual truth, is as much the matter of the heart, our heart, as it is our head, our brain. That's what Jesus is basically saying. He's saying there are four different ways people respond. And then later he identifies it as our heart. He says there are four different ways that our hearts respond to the gospel when we hear the gospel and whether we become a believer. And so when we're talking about phantom faith, we're getting right at the very beginning on how you become a believer and how people receive the message. And so, and the question that we need to keep in mind and what God intends for us to, to internalize is which kind of heart do we have? Which kind of heart represents our heart? And so the first one is this, a hard heart. A hard heart rejects the gospel. Let's look at the next verse after that middle part. Verse eight, verse, I'm sorry, 11. So Jesus tells him the meaning. He says, now the parable is this. The seed is the word of God. Those beside the road are those who have heard. Then the devil comes and takes away the word from their heart so that they will not believe and be saved. He's saying, hey, when I tell people these mysteries, when I tell people the gospel, a lot of people, their hearts are hard and they just don't believe they reject it. And when they reject it, if they do that strong enough, then Satan comes and sort of takes the word away from their life. And, and, and that kind of introduces a topic, Satan, that we don't talk about a whole lot. But just know this. Whenever we communicate the gospel, this good news of what Christ has done for us, that he loves us and he's made a way for us to be with him forever and not pay for our own sins... When we hear that good news, every time we speak that good news, every time we preach the good news, there is a spiritual battle that opens up right then and there because there is a, someone who opposes God, a spiritual being, a created being called Satan, who is against God. And now, when we think about hard-hearted people, a lot of people might think about atheists, people who just say, no, I don't believe in a God. Doesn't matter what, what logic says. I just don't believe in God. And it's a lot easier not to believe in God. I, I can run my own life if I don't believe in God. But primarily when, God, when Jesus talks about hard-heartedness in the New Testament, he typically is re referring to religious people, not irreligious people. So yeah, an atheist can be described as somebody with a hard heart, but also people in religions are hard-hearted. People even who describe themselves as Christians can be hard-hearted. This is somebody who they really reject the gospel. 
They may hang around with Christians. They may do the church thing, but they reject the gospel. And then, so that's the first type of soil, represents a hard heart. The second type of soil is a shallow heart that will turn away from the gospel. And that's a little bit different. It's in verse 13, next verse. Those on the rocky soil are those who, when they hear, receive the word with joy. These have no firm root. They believe for a while, and in time of temptation, they fall away. Now, when he uses the term rocky soil, we think of soil that's got a lot of rocks in it. There's actually a term for this that we could know by the original language, that what he's talking about is a, a layer of rock that's covered like with an inch of soil. That's what he's talking about. For example, in our backyard at our house, there's a septic tank buried right next to where our deck is. And that septic tank is concrete. And the concrete isn't buried that deep underneath the top of the soil. So there's just an inch or two of soil there. Well, what happens every spring is the grass pops up nice and green. It all looks good. But then as the summer heat comes, all that grass dies and, it, and we have this dead spot you know, and then there's an outline of where our septic tank is with dead grass. You know, it's that. That's the picture that Jesus is telling these people, and they would get because they're in Israel, and that's how a lot of Israel is. And so people with shallow hearts, they hear the word, and they respond with joy. That is good news. Wow, that's great. But when difficulty comes, they turn away. They're at first joyful, but when hard times come, they turn away. And the hard times that Jesus is primarily referring to here, it could be any kind of difficulty, and we see that in people. Well, I, I became a Christian, and then this happened to me, and I'm thinking, well, a lot of good that did me. God didn't protect me from that. I'm out of here. But what Jesus is specifically talking about here is persecution. And that's more like, say, the teenager who becomes a believer, they, they hear they hear the gospel, they say, they react with joy to the, the good news, and they think they've become a believer, but then they go off to college or, you know, go, hang, go to work in some uh, job with their friends, and then because they're ridiculed or because they're mocked, they bag Christianity. They, they leave Christianity. They, they're not, they didn't sign up for that. They don't now believe it either, and so they drop Christianity like a hot potato. But that's a sign that they never really understood Christianity to begin with. And we all know people that are kind of like this. Probably all of us know somebody who said they were a Christian or they would say now that they're a Christian. But they, they don't seem at all interested in God. You know, they don't come to the church, a church that Jesus founded the church. That's for us today. They're not interested you know, they're not interested in studying God's Word, finding out more about God, growing closer to God. You know, they don't talk to God seriously. I mean, they may throw up a prayer every day, just sort of a rote thing, the same thing they always pray. But they don't really have a vibrant relationship. They don't talk to God about things that are in their life, seeking what God's will is for them. They think they're believers, but they're not believers. Other people that are like this are people who... Uh, and maybe you know somebody like this. I can't think of anybody right off the top of my head. But, you know, people will come into church and then something will happen at church that will hurt their feelings. 
And then they're just gone. They're not gone like they went to another church. Oh, yeah, I tried a couple of times. And then you talk to them like three years later. Hey, what? I haven't seen you for a while. What's going on? Yeah, well, and then and a lot of times they won't even tell you. But if they do tell you, it's like, well, something hurt my feelings. And then I just left. It's like, yeah, but, but we, we can fix that. I mean, you should tell somebody. Let's, let's work on this. Let, you know, this is your church. Church is important. It's God's idea. And, and it's like they don't really care. Um, what Jesus is telling us is proof of faith is not its intensity at the beginning. It's, it's not that. It's endurance to the end. Now, please don't get me wrong, because a lot of people, this sounds like you can lose your salvation because you once accepted it with joy. But here, here's what Scripture teaches very clearly. Once we genuinely become a believer, we will never lose that. So we have a little saying that says, once saved, always saved. But there's, there's another saying that we could use that would go along with this, and that's with, and that would say like, once saved, forever following. Once saved, you should always follow Christ. Now, we don't do that perfectly. We still sin. I'm not saying sinless. I'm saying, hey, we make mistakes, but the mark of a Christian is when we, when we sin against God, and I call it mistakes, but it's actually serious stuff. When we sin against God, we repent. That means we admit it. We talk to God about it. Admit where we erred, where we did wrong, and then ask God to help us not do that. That's repentance. I admit it, and now I want to do better. And that's the mark of a true Christian. Now, Jesus is saying it's more about how we finish than how we start. The third soil signifies to us a divided heart. A divided heart will choke out the gospel in our life. Look at verse 14. Next verse says, The seed which fell among the thorns, these are the ones who have heard, and as they go on their way, they are choked with worries and riches and pleasures of this life and bring no fruit to maturity. A divided heart follows all the distractions in life more than following God. So it's everything becomes more important than God. And so living for Jesus is always backburnered in our life as we pursue, you know, our worries or our pleasures or our comforts or whatever. Now, don't, you know, and a lot of times it's just bills. You know, we have bills to pay and we need to work hard. And what about our retirement? And how about possessions or comfort or, you know, our next vacations? And there's nothing wrong with those things. But we can never allow any of those things to become our priority in life. It's always got to be God as our priority. And if those other things be, grow and grow over time and become priority, that shows us that our faith was never really genuine. And we see this happening all the time. It's such a temptation to let the busyness of life choke out us following Jesus. You know, it's so easy to get distracted. And again, it's not that these things are insignificant. We just cannot allow them to keep us from living for Jesus. And then there's the fourth soil. 
The last one Jesus talks about. And this is a genuine believer. And it's, it's described, this soil is described as an honest heart that holds the gospel and produces fruit. Verse 15. Jesus explains this one. But the seed in the good soil, these are the ones who have heard the word in an honest and good heart and hold it fast and bear fruit with perseverance. So this fourth soil is the only one that's showing us genuine Christianity. He's saying, hey, if, we, if we're the right kind of heart, if we're honest heart, if we're honest with ourselves, then we will hear and respond to the gospel. We will hang on to the gospel, hold it, and we will produce change and therefore fruit in our lives. Now, last week, for example, um, we shared the good news, and then we gave an opportunity for people to respond. So as people to respond, it's a very intensely personal thing, so uh, we don't want to manipulate that in any way. But we challenge people, hey, put your trust in Christ and Christ alone. If you've never done that, there's no better day. And we're going to do the same thing today. And then at the end of the service here on this campus, between the two services, eight people raised their hand to say, hey, Kevin, I just want you to know, pray for me, I did that. I put my faith in Jesus. And so, you know, that's so precious to me. But, but here's the deal. When we will have confidence that those people are truly believers will be months and years, maybe decades from now, that they hold on to the word of truth. If they're truly believers, they'll persevere. I mean, one of the most exciting things for me to hear, maybe it's true for you too, is when people talk about how God has changed their life. And we get to hear this continuously. Just, you know, this week, for example, this last week, hearing people tell me, I, I met with a, a couple and, and they, you know, and I knew they were believers and I remember when they became believers and they were going through some hard times and I had them tell me, Kevin, we want you to know that we became believers before the hard times. You know, and, and, and I remember that. But I think they're saying, it's not like we got in trouble and then we turned to God. Although there's nothing wrong with that. They're saying, we turned to God and all this trouble has happened and it's okay because we've got Jesus. It's just a cool story. I've had other people tell me about their family members. Wow, the, Kevin, you don't know how this person has changed in my family since they've become a believer. You see, change is what the Christian life brings in our life. Change is what Christ does to us. Change is what happens when the Holy Spirit or the Holy Ghost that Tim was singing about comes into us. He produces change and therefore fruit in our lives. This is so important, so key, that we have a motto at our church, a purpose statement that says this, that we exist as a church to help people do four Ds, four things that begin with D. Discover truth. We want people to understand the truth that God says He exists. And, you know, we want to present that truth and get that out there. Once they get that truth, we want people to do, we want to help them do something else. The second thing, decide on Jesus. Make a decision 
for Jesus. Okay, Jesus has made these claims. Now you have to respond one way or another. We want to help you decide on Jesus. Third, if that decision is real in your life, it'll show up. You will demonstrate change. If you say you come to Christ and then you live another 10 or 20 years and you've not significantly, your life has not changed that you can point back and say that's because of Jesus. That's a problem. That's an indicator that your faith is not real. So help people discover truth, decide on Jesus, then demonstrate change. And then as we demonstrate change in our life, then we will also want to deploy for others. That means that we will somehow get involved because it will be important to us that other people receive the gift that we've gotten. We want to love them and have them receive that gift too. So we become more and more concerned about the people that we care about and also people we don't even know that they would also hear the good news and respond in faith. That's what we want. And uh, someone who's truly saved will continue to actively follow Jesus. But here's the deal. This good news that Jesus brought us, that we preach, that the Bible teaches us about, the good news demands a response. The good news that Christ died to do to judicially pay for our sins so that we could be forgiven and God could still be just. We have to respond. And, and God's saying the only proper response is with faith or belief or by trusting in that truth, what Jesus did, and in Jesus alone. And if you've never done that, then you can't be a Christian. If you think, well, yeah, I know Jesus died for me, but how do I know I'm going to heaven? Well, well, because, you know, I, I do good stuff. Well, if you're saying that like I do stuff that I would have never thought I'd be doing because God's coming and changed my heart, well, that's evidence for salvation. But if you're saying that is, is saying, no, God sort of owes me a pass because I'm a pretty good person. You've misunderstood the entire Bible. Have you come to that point where you're trusting in Christ and Christ alone for your salvation? That's the mystery that's been revealed to all of us through the New Testament, through the ministry of Jesus, through churches around the world. Have you responded? Just like last Sunday, occasionally, and I want to do it again right now, is I want to give stop our service for a moment and give people an opportunity to respond to that so we don't just go on to the next thing because this is the most important decision you'll ever make in your life. And so right now I'd like us to all bow our heads and I know not everyone knows me and I don't know everyone here especially if you're new and so I know it's hard for you to trust me but I'm telling you hey, I want to invite you to express your newfound faith in Christ and I, I want you even to tell me that without me embarrassing you or putting you on the spot in any way. But when, it's just a heart issue. Only you and God know if your heart's sincere. Just truly in your heart, 
put your trust in Jesus alone. Call out on him. And then you can express that faith by calling out to him in prayer. You don't have to do it out loud, but I would invite you, if you're trusting today, as far as you know for the first time, that you make this prayer your prayer. You can do it silently. God knows your every thought. Just express these things to God. God, I know, Lord, that I have sinned against you. And I deserve separation from you forever. That's what the Bible teaches. We've got to also understand that you love me anyway and that you've made a way by allowing your one and only son, Jesus, to come to earth to voluntarily die on the cross to pay for my sin, to be my substitute, to pay the penalty for my personal sin. And God, I believe that. And I'm putting all my trust for salvation in Jesus and Jesus alone, your son. And God, I'm also asking you to come into my life, your Holy Spirit, your Holy Ghost, that you would come into my life and help me live it in a way that pleases you. My whole life, help me grow closer and closer to you, Lord. Thank you. In Christ's name.